are back. Just like that, we say goodbye to 2022 and welcome in 2023. We're kicking off January's podcast with an old friend, an old colleague, and now a company founder and director of Green Net Zero. Before I introduce my guests this week, I will kindly ask you to subscribe, like, comment, and share. It really does make a huge difference. So into the nuts and bolts of this week's podcast, the challenges to get to a greener future. We are joined by the stalwart Chris Newman. Hey. But in the hot seat today, I'm so pleased to welcome this week's guest. He's been the host of the Ask Me podcast, Mr. James Smurfwaite. Well, welcome back, mate. How are we? I'm very well, thanks, lads. It's weird being on the other side of this, I've got to be honest, but uh, exciting, really exciting. Great to have you in, mate, and thanks so much for, for joining us today. Chris, no you're back in the hot seat as well, my friend. How's things with you? Yeah, good, Dan. Thanks for having me back. Um, all good, yeah. Nice start to 2023. So, um, you know, I like to see the break, gents, although it feels about two or three months ago. Enough pigs in blankets to uh, keep, you, uh, keep you weathered through the winter storm. Always doesn't need Christmas for pigs in blankets, Dan. Gotta be honest, all year round, mate. But uh, no, it's been a good one, really, really good one. Thank you. Just nice to get back into it, a bit of a break, reset, and uh, start the year off again. So no, it's looking forward to twenty twenty three. Should be a good one. Perfect. James Green Net Zero. So, God, what was it? Two years ago, you were probably in my seat right now, working in the corporate team at Mitsubishi Electric, and now onto the dizzy heights of a co-founder and director of Green Net Zero. Just give us. For our listeners, a flavour of where you've been, what you're up to, and uh, what Green Net Zero is all about. Yeah, so um, it's not not even well. It's just just coming up to a year in February. So we started the company February last year on Valentine's Day. There's no uh, no coincidence with that at all. But anyway, it's uh, yeah, Green Net Zero. We are a building decarbonisation consultant, stroke project management company, which is a bit of a mouthful and a bit of a weird way to phrase it. But we're we're a bit different to other businesses that are out there, really, I suppose. So we effectively assess um, clients' existing buildings and we recommend solutions that help them to decarbonize, um, reduce, obviously, the amount of carbon that they've got within their buildings and support them with their drive to net zero. That's that's the general idea. Um, obviously, there's a lot of things that surround that. It's not just the things that we used to do when I was at Mitsubishi, you know, heat pumps and air conditioning, but we're also looking at other renewable technologies like solar PV and EV chargers. And we're also looking at existing services in buildings like lighting and controls and even things like behavior, how people actually control their buildings, what they do, you know, on their day to day. So yeah, there's quite a lot that we're, that we're doing and it's been an interesting journey. And um, one that obviously my time at Mitsubishi set me up for quite nicely, really with the, with the sort of market leading, um, Sort of support that we give to you, well, you give to your customers and your your uh, your clients, and the sort of technologies you've got available. It's uh, yeah, it's set me up really well, really. And we, we didn't even have to pay you to say that either, mate. So no, not, not <laughs> at all, not at all. No, good introduction, James. He's having to work now, Chris. And so, obviously, zero carbon design manager at Mitsi. Uh, Mitsubishi Electric, should I say? What's what's the synergy between what you do in your day to day roles and and how you potentially would interact with someone like James and Green Net Zero? Uh, what's interesting, actually, because uh, obviously a lot of the things that James does are a lot of the things that we're doing in our team um, and I'm doing on a daily basis. The only difference is is that uh, 
we talk about it and then we need somebody like James or James's business to actually come along and, and deliver it. We're lucky that we work for a, a big manufacturer that we can afford to put some time into a project quite speculatively. We can do some feasibility studies or help a client work through some challenges um, or help them come up with some uh, some ways to overcome some barriers to make a project work or at least help them with the numbers to see if it looks like it might work or might not work. But then ultimately, once we get to that point, um, we, we have to turn around to a client and say, you know, we're not a design house. We're not a contractor. Uh, we you know now need you to work with a consultant, work with a design engineer, work with um, a contractor to actually deliver this project. And, and obviously that's great. And um, if you can get a consultant to work or a designer to work closely with a contractor so that everybody's on the same page and then deliver that dream, uh, that solution to that client. But often it doesn't quite work like that. So maybe may interestingly from James's point of view, because you're, I suppose you're writing the theme tune and then singing the theme tune, it makes it a little bit easier for you to take what you've put down on paper as a, as a thought, as an idea, as a feasibility, but then ultimately deliver it. So um, there is a lot of synergy between what we do, um, but maybe, um, yeah, maybe James yeah, can I, show I think, a more light on that. I think what, you, what you're sort of saying there really, Chris, is the concepts there. It's the, it's the delivery piece and the practicality of actually putting in some of these really good solutions that have been engineered. And, you know, we, we only tend to work on live buildings or existing buildings. We, as a business, decided not to go for new build properties because they tend to be a bit easier. And, you know, a majority of the stock that's going to be there in 2050 when the UK needs to achieve net zero by, um, have already been, has already been built. So we've got to concentrate what's on what's already there. And we tend to find that people have got good ideas, but when it actually comes to working in either a live occupied building or um, building where we've got to make modifications to systems that have been there for a number of years, you know, 15, 20 years plus, it, it, becomes, it becomes a real challenge. And that's kind of where I suppose when I was at Mitsubishi doing the job we were doing in the in not only the sort of consultant side of the business but the the corporate side working for end users, that's the bit that's the tricky bit, and that's the the bit that we need to try and unlock to get some of these projects up and running, um, especially when it comes to to heating. It's um it's a really interesting thing that you just said there, James. About I think it was Chris actually, you know, the existing building stock, and you know we've speak spoken previously on on the podcast about retrofit and the stranded asset and so looking through the lens of challenges to get to a greener future from your perspective james what what are you finding as the key drivers right now is it purely return on investment is it uh, there's a genuine appetite is it you finding that businesses just want to drive down their carbon footprint so that they can shout about it you know what are you finding at, at the coalface as to what are those key drivers so all three of those are, are, are drivers um, yeah. without a doubt so as you said people seem to care a lot more about um, the environment and want to be greener and also be seen to be greener and be doing their bit for reducing carbon and, and, and making you know the world a better place and, and they're building stock much more um, sort of carbon friendly but also <laughs> couple that with last year where the energy crisis kicked in and people were then finding mm. that their energy bills were going up. Um, we found probably our biggest, biggest driver is actually the cost of energy and trying to reduce the amount that you're paying for your energy bills every month, whether that's electricity or gas or water, any of those three. So 
at the moment, that's probably the most pressing thing that people are really looking at because obviously there's subsidised bills at the moment for business owners that the government's paying for. Yeah. And then come the, mm-hmm. come April, that's going to start to disappear. And, you know, two thirds, 95 percent of bills that are being kind of subsidised by the government are then going to go away and they're going to have this big problem of increased energy prices again and having to try and work out where they're going to be able to pay those and how they're going to be able to pay those and how they're going to whether they're going to pass the costs on to other people or how that's going to go. So that's probably the most pressing thing for us at the moment. Um, you also touched a little bit on uh, sort of legislation as well around it. So we're, we're doing a lot of work with EPCs on, on buildings. Um, mm-hmm. While that doesn't necessarily truly cover a building's efficiency and, and sort of embodied carbon, it's still a kind of metric in the market of showing how, um, don't know how you put it really how how efficient you want your building to be so we're looking at things like lighting upgrades um we're looking at um electrifying heat um we're looking at controls in buildings for epcs as well so to, to kind of get building stock up to a much better level for asset owners um so whether they can sell them on for a better price or they can lease them is, is another big challenge so all those three really are, are ones we we tend to look at a lot um at the moment James, obviously historically, it's always about return on investment. It's always about um, trying to make the numbers stack up for the client. Historically, there's always been a a spark gap between the cost of electricity and the cost of gas. Um, And we've always, obviously, selfishly, from our point of view, we we sell uh, heating and cooling and ventilation products that run on electricity usually. So we're always trying to bridge that gap between um, fossil fuel cost per kilowatts and uh, electric. We've obviously seen massive changes recently in, in those costings from clients' point of view, both domestically and commercially. Um, are you still, see, still seeing the same ratio of difference between those costs? So although the costs have gone up, are, we, are you still trying to get to the same sort of efficiencies to, to get that break-even point between electric-driven so, systems yeah, and electric-driven so systems? So return on investment is key. So we know that trying to unlock projects has got to be a reason why you want to do it ultimately it could be down to carbon we've already you know we'll speak about that probably a bit later but the key driver is that return on investment i'm paying x amount for this new system how much am i going to save over the lifetime that that's in there so when we're comparing a lot of the technologies within our buildings it's quite simple to look at things like lighting because you're replacing a, an inefficient lighting system with a more efficient lighting system so you get a very good return on investment when you're comp- when you're replacing a gas system for an electric system as you said, Chris, the spark gap has a big impact on what we're trying to do. Now, last year, well, 2021 now, um, sort of the average market price was 14p per kilowatt for electric and 2.3p per kilowatt for gas. Gas has now gone up to 6.5p, so it's about 280% increase, and electricity has only gone up to around about 21.6, so it's about 150% increase. So that gap is starting to narrow, but it's still quite a distance and it's still not quite given us the paybacks that we want on some of these big decarbonisation projects that have a huge impact on carbon, but they don't necessarily have that big big impact on operating costs for for a business, especially when you pay in, um, start to start to consider, you know, um, pipework upgrades and and infrastructure upgrades that you've got to include within that as well, not just the the, the equipment itself. So, um, we are seeing it we are seeing it but it's going in the right direction which is a good thing gents both of you so chris i'm going to coin your phrase here um low carbon is not low cost um and obviously with a return on investment 
being a key driver for the client developer. You've got funding in the public sector um, and not so much sort of funding available in the private sector. How, how do we bridge this gap? How do we make low carbon affordable? You know, what, where, where does the hierarchy come in when it comes to looking at the building, James? You know, you mentioned about changing lighting. You mentioned, you know, putting in a heat pump. Where, where does that hierarchy sit and how can we play a part as a manufacturer, Chris, um, to push our kit up to a more affordable solution and then actually a better solution within that sort of hierarchy of change? Challenging question. Apologies. <laughs> the problem is, Dan, um, that it depends what you... It, it depends which one of those things you're trying to achieve because at the moment it's not possible necessarily to achieve all of them. Um, if if return on investment is is the is the sole driver, then the reality is right now. If you look at um, something like James mentioned, a direct elect, electric light replacement from an uh, you know from a current light to an LED, that's a really straightforward example. You know the cost will go down because you're still using the same fuel. You're just using less of it because you've got a more efficient lighting system. And there's not really any change to possibly even a benefit to the client in terms of a better looks level, you know, um, uh, less maintenance requirements, less failures, you know, so it's a really easy thing to sell, but that's not where you're going to get the biggest uh, decarbonization. That's not going to give you massive improvements on the building overall. And it's the time of, it's the type of thing that once you've done it once, the reason it's kind of done um, when it comes to more complex solutions like replacing fossil fuel systems for heat pumps for example there's a lot of factors you're changing fuel source you're fundamentally changing you know the hydraulics of the building the heat emitters uh, there's all sorts of stuff plant space changes there's, there's lots of other things return on investment i think for me selfishly if a client comes to me and says i'm looking at one of your solutions but i want to return on investment I'm not saying that we won't go any further down that road, but if that is the, the single biggest priority, then the likelihood is that that client isn't going to achieve that. We've, we've got to be open and honest to think on day one and say if all you're looking at is the ones and zeros on a return on investment for doing this, then and you're only willing to look at this in isolation. You're not willing to look at wider benefits because you might save money elsewhere, just not directly on replacing that bit of kit for this bit of kit then there there isn't really much of a business case to be perfectly honest you know there's mm. we talked in the last podcast about carrots and sticks there aren't that many carrots available so um there aren't really that many sticks available i think what was it in the net zero review that came out uh, recently uh, 324 months left until we get to requirements to be net zero in 2050 uh, so it's not that long that is the driver not trying to save money and that's probably the single biggest problem that we've got is that every single change that has happened historically when we've moved from one type of system to another or from one technology to another there's always been a financial benefit to doing it and it, and this you could argue is one of the, the the first things where we need a paradigm shift but there isn't necessarily a direct financial benefit the financial benefit might come in different ways you know, the insurance might go down because if we can get, keep it under one and a half degree, flood risks don't go down. There's all sorts of other, you know, biodiversity changes. There's, there's a thousand other things that will be affected that will not cost you money in a different way or will not, you know, challenge your business in a different way. 
um, that might reduce your business's turnover or might reduce your business's profitability, profitability, or might even just reduce the the employees of your business or, or their desire to want to work for your business, for example. You know, we've seen an awful lot of people that take this subject very, um, very seriously and, and want to work for businesses that are doing the right thing rather than simply relying on having a return on investment of a, of a particular decision. So there are a lot of other factors is, is where I'm coming from. Uh, are, you, are you seeing this sort of thing, James? Are you seeing people not having return on investment as number one priority? Or are you, are you um, seeing that and you're moving on to a different client as a result? So I, I think it depends on their driver, which is what you've already said. So, and how far you take that return on investment. If you're just looking at the at the product and how it operates and and its efficiency and you pay back on it, then yeah, you, you won't get a return on investment. If you're investing in your building and you're potentially, you know, take the EPC angle, for instance, if, if your building's currently an EPC D and you've done some investigation on it and there's ways of getting it up to a, a C or a B even, then by putting in a, a, a more efficient heating system or, you know, taking like a traditional four pipe system with, with gas boilers and, and uh, chillers, for instance, and replacing it with an air to air system or VRF system, that will have a positive impact on your EPC, which will then mean potentially that your building is more lettable or, or, you know, the, the, the improvement on, how much you can let it for will be will be great enough to justify those projects going ahead. So you will get a return on investment, but it might not necessarily be directly with the equipment. And we're seeing that quite a lot now um, where, you know, I was only talking to a, a building management company uh, last week where they they said that their their building owners or basically their asset asset owners um, for a lot of the state throughout the UK, mainly in London, um, people are going on to try and rent commercial space within within their buildings or they're looking at commercial space available in London. And hmm. there's so much available at the moment because of obviously COVID and hybrid working and there's a lot more um, space available out there that people are going, filtering down the list and basically looking at cost per month and they're looking at um, location and then it gets to the point of EPC. So if the EPC of one building is a C and one's a B, they tend to go for the B and they don't even bother going to view the ones that's a C. So you are getting a return at some point with that asset improvement. It's just not necessarily directly with that product. So that's one one way of looking at it. And I mean, the other thing we talk about um, sort of government investment in these things, we are seeing a lot of private funding that's coming through for renewable technologies. And when you, again, when you look at heat pumps in isolation or low carbon heating in isolation, it doesn't necessarily stack up, but if you've got a scheme where you can do your LED light upgrades and you can put in solar PV and you can start mm -hmm. to wrap a bit of a finance package around a number of other things. So you do get a payback and you are saving money on your bills every single month and it's getting financed, then it makes it a much more viable proposition for people to start to consider. So we're also looking at that as well, which, which I think will become a bigger thing moving forwards where people will try to do a full wrap round scheme of not just looking at one particular part of a building, they'll look at the whole thing and try and make it work financially for them. Just just on that, looking at the building as a whole building, so to speak, you know, understanding the building fabric and now understanding how the building is used is is really key data, James. And I just wanted to see, do you delve dive, delve into this um, area within? your remit at green net zero are you sort of speaking to the client developer whoever it may be to understand how the building is being used um you know behaviors in in workspaces have changed so much 
the way we use office spaces is so different. It doesn't have to be office spaces. Any any space now is so different that are you looking at the way um, you then apply a, a system or uh, a sort of decarbonization lens on that building based on the used or the building fabric? Like, is that a key driver for you at the moment? I think building use definitely is. So without replacing kit and, you know, if a building's gone from being a fully occupied Monday to Friday, 8.30 to mm. 5.30 type property and, and now it's not, it's a more flexible learning facility and it's perhaps not got people in there on Mondays and Fridays and things like that. If they've not changed their building system to allow for that, then there's some real quick wins there on reducing your operating costs and the energy you're using to to operate that building by doing that. So we do we do look at that for people. Um, fabric, we don't tend to touch that as much of a business, but obviously that is a big part of um, trying to make buildings more efficient. But I think the other thing that we are looking at and we are partnering with people on is is trying to make people understand their energy usage and how they use it um, and their profiles and making sure that they understand what's being left on and what they need to leave on, what they need to keep the building operational what you know how much of that equipment needs to be operating to to maintain comfort levels and and ventilation levels and things within the facility so we are looking at that as well and and that is definitely something that people need to to understand a lot more um i'm sure i've said this before um on these podcasts but obviously you can't reduce we don't measure exactly right yeah that is true exactly data, right data data right yeah and and also you know I, I touched on it with financing and people are going out for loans for some of these um for some of these renewable technologies that are going in, but you know, solar is a big thing at the moment. I know it's not necessarily talking about a product that that you guys deal with day to day in the UK, but everyone's going out and wants solar at the moment because they know there's there's a big advantage for them to put it on their buildings if they've got big roof space. And banks are going to start to look at, well, actually, have you got too much on your building? Have you got, you know, have you put more there than you really need? Are we giving you more money than you really need? So. For you to actually put the right size equipment in there, you need to understand exactly how much you're using in the building and when you're using. So no point in putting batteries in there if you don't operate the building overnight or, you know, there's no point in in kind of putting a system in without batteries if you've got a requirement for energy overnight and, and things like that. So they are finance houses are starting to actually look at people giving them really good quality data to, to make sure that they are putting the right size equipment in there that that's sized correctly for what they actually need. Sure. Just circling the wagons, going back to the question, challenges to get to a greener future, something that I'm seeing a lot of on social platforms like LinkedIn or, or, or in construction built environment news is um, carbon neutrality and, and offsetting. Um, and whilst I think there's a, there's a huge space and, and it's, it's great that we're working towards becoming carbon neutral, um, the challenge is we need to reduce first. Um, Chris, I'd love to sort of get your opinion on what is the synergy between sort of us as being a, a top manufacturer um, and our services, whether that be, you know, the new sustainability and construction team, Dalton sales within Mitsubishi Electric, uh, product marketing and the developments that they're sort of bringing out from a product perspective. How do we drive change within the industry to make sure that we are at the forefront of reducing first and not just relying on paying for for offsets for the future well that's really that's really difficult to do that dan because we talked before about return on investment we talked before about mm -hmm. you know the, the the numbers have got to add up um and right now there is no requirement for you to reduce mm -hmm. your carbon emissions 
there are requirements coming to get to EPCC by 2027, EPCB by 2030, for example, and as a byproduct, that will require you to do some work, which indirectly will reduce your carbon emissions. But in terms of actually reducing your carbon emissions, I think the figure um, I was reading the um, Net Zero Review by Chris Skidmore, uh, the chair of it recently, he was saying uh, that around about 40% of all the leading institutions across the world have made net zero pledges. However, almost half of the policies in government's net strategy, uh, net zero strategy at the moment, rely on individual action, no requirement, no, no, no benefit necessarily or directly for you doing it. It's purely just down to you to do. So when it comes to carbon offsetting, the, the, the reality of it right now is that it's cheaper to offset the carbon than it is to invest and save the production of the carbon in the first place. That's the top and bottom of the numbers, but it isn't going to be like that forever. And these are cumulative numbers. So uh, this is another really important point. Everything we talk about is cumulative. It doesn't just happen as a one-off. You don't run an inefficient light once, you run it every day. And if you pay to offset those carbon emissions in 2022, then you're paying to offset them in 2023 and 2024 and so on and so on. And they will get more expensive every year. All of the technologies that we're talking about, we're, we're not suggesting that you should go and rip perfectly functional equipment out, but you should have a plan, a roadmap in place so that when things are due at their end of life, you should be replacing them for something that will have a lower carbon existence during its life that's that's the problem so how do we make that more attractive and how do you do it and i think as james was saying before you've got to put a really compelling case forward you've got to have belief and reliability in the equipment that you're replacing it for because the equipment that's in there has, has done its job for x amount of time you've got to have belief in the numbers it's all very well and good someone like me coming along or James coming along and saying, yeah, 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 don't worry, you'll save a load of carbon or you'll save a load of cost. Where's the trust in that? Um, and as a manufacturer, we can produce boxes to do things as we do when we're trying to make incremental improvements. At the moment, there's no silver bullet. There is no sudden massive technology change that's going to completely dramatically change the landscape of this type of system, this type of solution within a building. It's all incremental improvement. So um, arguing over a couple of percent of you know, doing this or doing that, that's not really where the argument needs to be. It should be about the cumulative effect over a longer period of time. And that's where the return on investment doesn't necessarily come in because you need that longer period of time to make those savings, the carbon savings stack up and therefore to make the cost of offsetting them not stack. I can see, we're all, I can see James nodding there, so he must agree with me. I do, I do agree with you. Chris has hit on a really good point there. And I, I think it's something that people don't necessarily consider. And um, we've definitely seen it. Um, when when you're talking about that return on investment and you're talking about, you know, your future kind of pledge to net zero, if, whatever date that's by, if, if you have, you might not have done already. You might be thinking about it. But part of that journey, you know, we, we've gone through it as a business. We wanted to start off on the right foot with the support of Mitsubishi, to be fair. To, to become a carbon neutral business. Now that doesn't mean we're net zero. We're, we're a long, long way away away from that. But the first thing we needed to do was to understand how much we're using, you know, carbon and mm. what our plan is to reduce that. And obviously 
whatever we do use, we have to offset that. And that comes at a cost. And, you know, Chris has already hit on that. So that is something you've got to invest in. And we're not a big business, you know, but we're spending, well, in, in fact, it took us about four months to, to decide what we we're going to do and what project we were going to fund. And by that time, the carbon offset costs had already gone up. You know, I'm seeing figures out there at the moment that, that it is increasing quite dramatically. So we, you know, we were paying, or we were quoted about £15 um, per kilogram of, of, of um, oh, sorry, per tonne of, of carbon initially back in May. And, and then it's gone up to £19 so in October. So there's quite a big difference there. And you've ran your business for another four months and produced another four months worth of carbon that you've now got. Off. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's based on a previous year. So you've got to look. So we, so we are part of a group of companies and, you know, the other the other side of the business that we're there for but they're, they're talking about you know these carbon offset costs going up it's you know they've already increased 300 the demand for it and the, and the cost of them from 2021 to 2022 that's a massive increase and it's only going to go one way so people have got to start to consider that you can't just offset you have to have a plan to reduce going forwards and a, a future plan to replace assets when they're at the end of their life with something that's less carbon intensive that's what you need to do and you know it's it's only going in one direction and i think you know, at the moment, while there's no carbon tax and things like that that are really being enforced on everyone, it, it's it's a matter of time. It's, you know, it, that kind of thing is going to be coming down the line. So it's just something that's worthwhile thinking about, really. I had a, a, a something that I thought might be interesting to talk to you about, James, um, because I see this all the time on uh, commercial uh, retrofit when we're yep. trying to displace gas nine times out of ten. We're trying to displace it with an air source heat pump. Because yep. it's one of the biggest carbon emissions of the building uh, from yep. the gas boiler. But a gas boiler takes up a nice small space in a plant room in the basement. And we're trying to replace it with an air source heat pump that's using, I mean, I did some quick maths. And, you know, we need somewhere in the region of about uh, one square meter for every 10 kilowatts of capacity, okay. roughly. I mean, you can get that as high as one square meter for 20 kilowatts of capacity on some modular solutions where the, where the plant space really comes down. But, um, you know, typically it, it could be around about a square meter for 10 kilowatts-ish. Uh, and that's a real problem on a lot of buildings, trying to find room for that. No, you know, noise it generates, the, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so that was, that was something that I did a little bit of digging into that I thought was interesting. I also did a quick bit of digging into some stats on uh, the average office the median office i should say not the average office the median office in the uk uses about 160 kilowatt hours per square meter of gas and about okay. about 60 kilowatt hours per square meter of electricity um, and depending on what costs you run them through the reality is that you know if you put a heat pump in um, instead of and you offset all of that gas with electric cost, it, it, the reality is you, you don't get to cost neutral and, unless you, you, you're getting towards sort of three seasonal COP. So um, it, say, it, those it, again, say those two again, what are those two figures? So uh, according to the non-domestic energy efficiency data that's produced by UK government, um, yeah. they look at different uh, building types and they take meter readings from those different building types. So obviously yep. there's all sorts of offices across the country of different sizes and the median office is about 60 kilowatt hours per square meter of electricity consumption and about 160 yep. kilowatt hours per square meter of gas consumption. Well, don't, don't you think it, it's a slightly interesting as well that one of the big things we're trying to do is reduce energy consumption in a building. 
all right that's to forget about what you're using in your building gas electric whatever it is right we're trying to reduce it but in order to make return on investment better you need to use a lot because the point is that if you if your usage is high then it makes more economic sense to swap out one bit of kit for something that's slightly better because you then get a faster return on investment because you're using a lot but it's almost like a double-edged sword we're telling people to you you know or you need to be using less which actually is working against your return on investment because the less and less you use the worse and worse your return on investment is going to look assuming that you're trying to save you know operational costs does that, does that make sense yeah that's true but but also by using less you, you are achieving you are achieving the overall you are producing less carbon right so the back to circular argument forget about um <laughs> forget about cost right if, if how much it costs and how much you save by running this instead of this is the only driver or is the main driver then the reality is that you're not far enough on your decarbonization journey yet for us to have a serious realistic conversation um and and overcome the, the likely barriers that are going to be in the way you know, we, we need you to get slightly further on your own where you realize that actually, yes, of course, cost is important, but it's not the number one concern because my business is committed to net zero in 2030, 2040, 2050, or because our ESG requirements are for X or because I need to get my building to EPCB or because or because or because, or because. Yep. It, unless you're slightly further down on your, your you know, your journey, um, we need to wait for people to catch up. Because we can't keep making an argument if the argument is fundamentally based on figures and numbers that in reality aren't actually going to stack up today. You know, it's like that film, isn't it? The, um, what was it? Don't Look Don't Up. Look up. Yeah. Where we know it's, you can see it's coming. You know it's coming, but let's not worry about that. We'll just carry on as we are. We'll carry on as we are. We'll carry on as we are. Eventually, it will become your problem. But some people are realizing that the sooner you do something about it, the better it is for the planet, the better it is for the business's stability, the fewer risks there are, and the likelihood is, that if they're going to have to do it eventually anyway, then actually the cost will be lower now than doing it at some point in the future. That's the intangible decision that they've got to, they've got to make. And I think it requires an extra little kick, doesn't it? It's got to be slightly further down that decarb understanding. So maybe that's the biggest problem. We need to do more education to get more people to realize that whether they like it or not, they are already on this journey. They are already on this road. The driver's there. It's just not a, it's not right in front of you right now. It's further on down the line. It's ignorance is bliss a little bit, isn't it? Like we've already seen over the years, everyone just kind of assumes that it'll be all right. By the time I get to it, everything will be sorted. So we spoke quite holistically about the challenges to get a greener future. And I think I can summarize that in three points, you've got carbon saving, energy saving, cost saving, whether that be in return of investment. And the, the last question I want to pose to you both is, well, what, what are the, what are the practical challenges? You know, is it, is it noise? Is it space? Like, what are you finding, Chris? What are you finding, James? You're both sort of in this world, speaking to consultants, speaking to clients. Um, let's get the point of view for, from, from you both. Mine's really easy. You know, the vast majority of the projects that I work on, Dan, are uh, displacing fossil fuels and gas uh, and looking to use uh, typically air source heat pump. That that's probably makes up 
nine and a half out of every 10 projects that I'm involved in. And the single mm. biggest challenge with that adoption, if you ignore the stuff we've already talked about, is space. Um, it mm. is trying to find, I mean, obviously it varies with model entirely, but you could be looking at, within reason, you need about a square meter of space for every 10 kilowatts of capacity there or thereabouts. So yes, say changes with different units and modular units really help get that down. Um, you know, you could be getting as much as 20 uh, kilowatts of capacity for every square meter, depending on what type of solution you use. But roughly, if somebody was asking me, you know, there are thereabouts 10 kilowatts. So to try and find a project where, I don't know, it's 500 kilowatts of load that you're trying to move from a gas boiler, which is currently taking up a tiny little space in a plant room, um, to an air source heat pump, assuming that you need equi equivalent capacity. You know, that's 50 square meters of space somewhere, you know, typically on a roof or external to the building. That's not easy to find. Um, and then that brings into other challenges like, you know, structural challenges for the weight of the product, noise, as you say, for the surrounding area. Um, we've had some projects recently as well where the space on the roof, we can get away with noise, not a problem, but we just can't get a crane in to lift the piece of kit onto that roof. And then if you've got to strip it apart, carry it up in a lift and rebuild it, it then starts to generate cost-related problems and programming-related problems or disruption problems. So to me, that's the single biggest challenge that I come across, but I only see one bit of typically Whereas, you know, James, I'm guessing you see other challenges because you've got the whole suite. Yeah, so we've got those challenges, Chris. <laughs> Funny you said that about the strip and rebuild thing and trying to squeeze stuff in because literally had a conversation today about that exact same thing where the client didn't have capacity to put in an electric boiler. So they're then looking at ways of getting heat pumps in. We can't get a crane in on the building. So we have to then look at doing a strip and rebuild on a heat pump, which then obviously increases the costs. You've got warranty issues potentially on it. It, it. There's other challenges that get thrown up by doing that. So that is a problem. Space is a real issue um, for air source heat pumps, obviously, but even, you know, water source heat pumps as well, where you need some kind of heat rejection on there. And you've got to put some sort of outdoor plant there if you're not blessed with, you know, boreholes or, you know, rivers or those types of things that are around it. So they are major problems for us. And I think the ways that we've kind of managed to overcome that is by actually assessing what the heat demand is within buildings. We, we've kind of fallen into the trap over the years and I know you've spoken about it a lot. Um, and it's something you see an awful lot of, of oversizing gas systems because it's not that expensive to do. Um, it doesn't really matter if you've got an extra couple of kilowatts in there, you, you know, it doesn't cost you that much more to run and the, the equipment doesn't cost you much more. But when you're then coming to replace systems with potentially like for like, which shouldn't be done, um, and trying to find the space for that bigger capacity to, to be situated outdoors, that's a real challenge. So we're having to go back and actually look at, going back to that point Dan said earlier about how that building's being used and what the actual heat demand is in there now. And if improvements have been made to windows and insulation, do they really need a megawatt boiler in there? Can they get away with a 500 kilowatt? Can they get away with a hybrid system where you've got still got a smaller gas boiler and a heat pump working side by side that eases you into that decarbonization journey at the moment? and probably gives you a return on investment. You know, there's all those kind of challenges that we're seeing. And it's there's just so many things we have to try and consider that it, it becomes kind of a myriad of options that go over to the client where if you want to decarbonization and have the biggest impacts on carbon, it's this, and this is what your cost is. If you want to get a better return on investment, it's maybe not as, as much of a decarbonization journey or decarbonization impact, but it's costing you a lot less. You can do this. So 
there's a bit of a balance between the two. But I, I think depending on where it is, um, you know, central London's a bit of a nightmare and and, and other major cities, it, it does throw up that challenge of, of, of space and noise. I think they're the two biggest, biggest problems that we're going to face in the future when everyone's trying to achieve the same things and put the same equipment in play. Gents, thank you. Chris, as always, thanks for, thanks for joining us today. Um, James, same to you. There's clearly plenty of challenges to, to get to a greener future. But with that is plenty of opportunity. And without this opportunity, you know, James, you probably wouldn't be sitting here representing Green Net Zero. So genuine thanks for all the work that, that you guys are doing. As always, Chris, thanks for, thanks for joining. Um, and we have to get over these challenges because it's breathing down our neck and it's getting pretty hot, pardon the pun. So tune in, um, stay following us, stay subscribed for future episodes of the Ask Me podcast. I've been Dan Smith, your host today, Sustainability and Construction Manager. Thanks very much for listening and I'll catch up soon.